Hello, and welcome to this audio edition of Philip Pusher's program notes for upcoming concerts by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. My name is Rich Caparola. Concerts by the CSO on Thursday, May 24th through Saturday the 26th feature guest conductor Esapeka Solonen and pianist Michiko Uchida. The program includes Johannes Brahms' Variations on a Theme by Haydn, Bela Bartok's Piano Concerto No. 3, and after intermission, Arnold Schoenberg's Verklärte Nacht, Transfigured Night. Here are Philip Puscher's program notes on Bartok's Piano Concerto No. 3, a work lasting about 23 minutes. After the last measure of this concerto, Bela Bartok wrote the Hungarian word Viga, the end, this was the last score Bartok completed before he was moved from his 57th Street Manhattan apartment to the Westside Hospital, where he died four days later. His friend, Tibor Charlie, visited him on his last night at home, and he found Bartok propped up in bed, surrounded by manuscript pages and medicine bottles, trying to finish the orchestral score of his third piano concerto. The great composer, weak and near death, was quite literally fighting the clock, filled with ideas he would not get time to tell us. Bartok's son, Peter, had already drawn the bar lines on the paper, so it was simply a matter of Bartok writing in the parts. He got within 17 measures. Shirley assumed the relatively straightforward task of deciphering the composer's shorthand and filling in the blanks. Bartok's last five years, spent entirely in the United States, were neither productive nor happy. For two years after his arrival in October 1940, he wrote nothing new. In April 1942, his health took a sudden turn for the worse, and he never regained his full strength. But Kusevitsky's commission for the Concerto for Orchestra in May 1943 rekindled much of Bartok's old spirit. The music began to flow. His last year, 1945, marked a new high point, except that time ran out. For the first time in years, Bartok worked on two major pieces at once, the third piano concerto and the viola concerto that he left in sketches on odd scraps of paper. This almost desperate surge of activity may well have come from a realization of the severity of his illness. When he left his Manhattan apartment for the last time, he was sketching a seventh-string quartet and considering a commission for a double concerto for a two-piano team. Bartok turned to a hospital doctor and said, I am only sorry that I have to leave with my baggage full. Bartok knew he would never play his third concerto. Its solo part is written not in the explosive and incisive style that suited his own hands in the style of his first two concertos, which he often did play, but in a serene and more lyrical vein meant for his wife, Dita. It was intended as a birthday gift. At the opening of the Allegretto, the marking is one of the few tempo indications Bartok actually wrote in. The piano etches a strong, simple melody, one note in each hand, two octaves apart, against a murmur in the strings. Although the music rises to moments of enormous energy and bristling excitement, the texture remains remarkably uncomplicated and transparent. It's as if Bartok meant for us to hear every note. The left hand of the piano solo often mirrors the right hand or plays the same music in contrary motion. The scoring is light, 
The trombones play in only two measures, and there's much doubling of instrumental lines. Rarely does Bartok weave a dense fabric of many individual voices. To those who had never understood Bartok's music, this new simplicity was dismissed as the sad product of his weakened condition, just as, in the previous century, Beethoven's visionary harmonies were blamed on his deafness. The second movement is based on Beethoven's Heiliger Dankesang, Holy Song of Thanksgiving, the sublime third movement of the String Quartet Opus 132, written after Beethoven recovered from a serious illness. Bartok uses the marking Adagio Religioso for the only time in his music. Shirley later adopted it for the unfinished viola concerto. Like the corresponding movement from Beethoven's quartet, it has an uncommon serenity and a complete command of a few perfectly suited materials. The strings begin, like Beethoven's, slowly unfolding and refolding a tiny idea. The piano pronounces a benediction of eloquent chords. The fragile middle section is Bartok's last evocation of night music. Over string tremolos, the piano, oboe, clarinet, and flute trade bird calls, some drawn from Bartok's own notations made while he recuperated the previous year in Asheville, North Carolina. The orchestra is used sparingly to wondrous effect. The piano awakens to the full power of the night in ripples of sound and cascading chords, but the winds restore calm and quiet. The piano plays a lovely two-part invention, rises to a great climax, and then yields to the infectious pulse of the final Allegro Vivace. The finale's main theme with its identifying rhythm short-long, long-short, recurs again and again, separated by aggressively fugal passages. The movement is lucid and relaxed, even in the most complex counterpoint. Bartok is in complete command throughout. There's no mystery surrounding the last 17 bars. The composer's shorthand instructions were all Shirley needed to complete without any doubt what is Bartok's last fully envisioned work. Program notes by Philip Husher on Bela Bartok's Piano Concerto No. 3. And now on to Arnold Schoenberg's Verklärte Nacht, Transfigured Night, a work lasting about 32 minutes. Arnold Schoenberg finished this music in December 1899. Written on the eve of a new century and on the threshold of artistic revolution, Verklärte Nacht, Transfigured Night, marks a turning point in the history of music. It's one of the last great romantic works, and at the same time, points to the future. Schoenberg was only 25, and this music was his calling card. Even though it's his most traditional work, it made him few friends. As soon as he completed Transfigured Night in its first version for string sextet, Schoenberg submitted the score to the Vienna Composers Guild, whose members refused to perform the piece because it included a dissonant chord that they couldn't find in their textbooks. The sextet was finally played in March 1902 by a group of Viennese musicians organized by Arnold Rosé, the composer's brother-in-law. Like a number of other works that have proved seminal, at its premiere, Transfigured Night provoked catcalls and fistfights and ended in a riot. One critic compared it to 
a calf with six feet, such as one sees often at a fair. Many years later, Schoenberg pointed out that six players actually possess 12 feet. Another observer commented that it sounds as if someone had smeared the score of Tristan while it was still wet. Despite the disastrous reception, Rosé decided to repeat Transfigured Night two years later. One day, during a rehearsal, Gustav Mahler wandered in to listen. He was a complete stranger to Schoenberg and had never heard a note of his music. Mahler was bowled over by the piece, and the two composers struck up a friendship, even though Schoenberg didn't care for Mahler's symphonies. He had recently heard the fourth. Schoenberg often visited the Mahler's apartment for dinner and shop talk. Alma Mahler later remembered terrible arguments at the piano and that some evenings ended abruptly with Schoenberg storming out. Mahler once asked her never to readmit that conceited puppy. But Schoenberg earned the support and respect of Mahler, his senior by 14 years. He is young and perhaps he is right, Gustav told Alma. In time, Schoenberg changed his mind about Mahler's music, too. In 1910, when Mahler turned 50, Schoenberg sent him a long letter. I cannot help remembering with much distress that in earlier days I so often annoyed you by being at variance with you, he wrote. Perhaps it was short-sightedness, perhaps contrariness. Perhaps, too, it was love. For with all this, I have always venerated you awfully. Like Mahler, who regularly composed at top speed, Schoenberg wrote Transfigured Night in three weeks. Schoenberg never forgot Mahler's comment that he composed the entire Eighth Symphony as if from dictation in just two months. Schoenberg drew his inspiration from a poem by Richard Demel, whose collection Woman and World had shocked the literary establishment when it was published in 1896. Schoenberg was intoxicated by Demel's ecstatic verse and liberal ideas, and he set several of the poems as songs. Your poems have had a decisive influence on my development as a composer, he wrote to Demel more than a decade later. They were what first made me try to find a new tone in the lyrical mode, or rather, I found it without even looking, simply by reflecting in music what your poems stirred up in me. The poem that affected Schoenberg most deeply and inspired him to write Transfigured Night is Zwei Menschen, Two People. A couple walks together through a cold, moonlit forest. The woman speaks. She is carrying another man's child. Longing for fulfillment as a woman, she gave herself to a stranger. Now, as life's revenge, she is finally brought together with a man she loves and who also loves her. The man tells her not to feel remorse. The strength of their love will include her child. They embrace and walk on in the brilliant moonlight. Schoenberg sensed that the eroticism and rapture of Demel's poem would best be expressed through music without words. It was his masterstroke not to write an orchestral tone poem like those currently all the rage by Richard Strauss, but a piece of chamber music, normally the most abstract of genres. The idea of writing program music for a string sextet was as novel as anything in the score itself, though it was Schoenberg's music that caused all the controversy. 
Schoenberg eventually conceded that Transfigured Night gained in stature without losing any of its intimacy when played by larger forces, and in 1917 he published the version for full string orchestra that is performed at these concerts. Schoenberg wasn't interested in musically representing the events in Demel's poem, but rather in capturing its powerful emotions, the moonlit night and an overwhelming sense of destiny. Later, Schoenberg pointed out a few correspondences between the verses and the score, but he always maintained that Transfigured Night worked equally well as pure music. In fact, the first time Demel heard Schoenberg's score, he became so absorbed in the music that he forgot to follow his own poem, which he had open in his lap. To our ears, Schoenberg's music logically extends the language of Brahms and Wagner. Schoenberg later confessed he was under their spell at the time, but at first, audiences only heard it as a distortion of a great tradition. Transfigured Night begins in D minor and progresses circuitously, like the couple's walk, toward the brilliance of D major. Schoenberg's sense of drama and evolving emotions is uncanny. At the heart of the piece, just before the man addresses the woman, there is a moment of total silence. The ending, the high, bright night of Demal's poem, is music of incomparable delicacy and splendor. Ultimately, Transfigured Night, almost alone of all Schoenberg's compositions, was accepted into the repertory. In 1937, Schoenberg wrote of its singular success in an essay entitled How One Becomes Lonely. My transfigured night, he writes, has made me a kind of reputation. From it I can enjoy, even among opponents, some appreciation which the works of my later periods would not have procured for me so soon. This work has been heard, especially in its version for orchestra, a great many times, but certainly nobody has heard it as often as I have heard this complaint. If only he had continued to compose in this style. Schoenberg always protested that he still did and that people didn't listen carefully enough to recognize it. But in fact, he knew that Transfigured Night would always be his most popular composition. Gustav Mahler remained an ardent supporter of Schoenberg's work. Perhaps he also found comfort in their shared understanding of public rejection. Mahler didn't understand Schoenberg's music himself, but he was a faithful and loyal friend. No doubt he saw himself in Schoenberg's willingness to risk everything for the music he felt compelled to write. I was not destined to continue in the manner of transfigured night, Schoenberg said nearly a half century later. The supreme commander had ordered me on a harder road. Mahler continued to attend concerts of Schoenberg's music. During a performance of the First Chamber Symphony in 1907, he attempted to silence the rowdy audience, and at the end, he stood at the front of his box applauding until everyone had left the hall. During the last year of his life, he lent Schoenberg 800 crowns, approximately one year's rent. He surely guessed that things would only grow worse for his friend. In his final year, Mahler worried, who will look after him when I am gone? When Mahler died in 1911, Schoenberg's career was at a crossroads. Recognizing that he had carried music to the edge of tonality, he was uncertain how to go on. For a while, he turned to painting, 
Most of the pictures are studies of his face, as if he were examining his very existence, but one shows the grave at Mahler's funeral. It is lined with mourners. And here is Demal's Transfigured Night in its entirety in a translation by Stuart Spencer. Two people walk through a bare, cold grove. The moon keeps pace and draws their gaze. The moon passes over the tall oak trees, no wisp of a cloud to dim heaven's light, into which the black, jagged tips reach up. A woman's voice speaks. I am carrying a child, but not by you. I walk beside you in a state of sin. I have done myself the most grievous wrong. No longer did I believe in joy, and yet had a great desire for a meaning to life, for a mother's joys and duties. And so, with a shudder, I allowed my sex to be held in a stranger's embrace, and even thought myself blessed. Now life has had its revenge. Now I have met you. Yes, you. She walks on, stumbling. She gazes aloft. The moon keeps pace. Her somber gaze is drowned in light. A man's voice speaks. May the child you've conceived not burden your soul. See how brightly the universe shines. Its radius casts its halo around us. You're drifting beside me upon a cold sea. Yet there passes a glow of inmost warmth from you to me and from me to you. That warmth will transfigure the stranger's child, and you'll bear me that child begot by me. You've transfused me with radiance and made me a child myself. He puts his arms around her strong hips. Their breath commingles in an airy kiss. Two people walk on through the high, bright night. Program notes by Philip Husher on Arnold Schoenberg's Transfigured Night. My name is Rich Caparola. Thanks for listening.